Hello and welcome to Connect Points podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Amen. Year 11, it's great to be back in Mankato. Always love coming home. So wonderful to see so many friends and family, wonderful people. Thank you to Pastor Cox again for putting on this wonderful conference. I know there's so many people that are a part of putting this together. Brother Kilman and I just kind of get to show up and hang out, I guess, and teach a little bit. So I know there's a lot of hard work, and we love and appreciate everyone that is doing that. Amen. We're going to go to Romans 15. I'm just the appetizer tonight. Brother Kilman's going to come up and teach a wonderful lesson to us. But we're going to... Start off with just a, just a little look here. And uh, here's what Romans 15 says. So the context of this is having humility and, and care for our brothers and our sisters. The verse says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So my question for us today is, what if those things written aforetime did not actually happen? So what if, you know, if Paul is telling us that we look to our scriptures, we look to the Old Testament, we look to the New Testament for, for comfort and hope, and, and he even says in, in uh, his, uh, his writing to Timothy that the word is our knowledge unto salvation. So if, we, if these things that we read about, if they didn't actually happen, do we have hope? Do we even have salvation, Brother Crane? What, what do we miss out on if these things didn't happen? So my goal for this lesson is to look at some, what I'm going to call maybe newer or cutting edge archaeological discoveries. And uh, I know we, we've done archaeology here before. It's been a few years. So I thought uh, God kind of leading me in this direction. So we're going to look a little bit at some, some evidences that, that support what happened in the scriptures. And uh, as, as a teacher, you know, sometimes teachers have these little things that they say all the time. And when I'm at CCS, one thing that I, I say probably every class is, the Bible is a, and then my class repeats back to me, a history book. So we're going to do that tonight. So let's practice, okay, Brother Rick? The Bible is a... We'll get better at it. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Okay, so let's start this off. We're going to take a look at some uh, ancient artifacts here in just a little bit, but what we have to understand is that so much of ancient history has been lost to us, whether through just the passage of time or a battle, something was destroyed, earthquakes, fires, whatever the case may be. If we take a look at all of history, and we got, of course, the Bible is a so the Bible is included in history, but if you look at the archaeological data, that's just a little snippet. And uh, there's a, a prominent archaeologist named J. Randall Price, and he said upwards of over 95% of ancient history has been lost to us. So I say that to say this, the fact that we have the things that we're going to talk about is astounding. Sometimes I've heard people say, you know, we don't have any evidence for this, or we haven't seen this in history. Well, and I've read this over and over and over, that there are literally hundreds of thousands of documents and, 
and clay tablets in the basements of universities and museums that have not even been touched or read. Because if you think about it, ancient languages, not a whole lot of people know how to read them. And even on top of that, you have to, you have to take very careful, uh, um, uh, there's very careful process when you're handling these ancient artifacts. So it's, it's a slow process to read these things and to go through them. So we're, we, we want to keep that in, in, a, in the front of our mind, that we have these things, but it shouldn't be like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. No, we need to understand that the fact that we found these items, it's, it's almost miraculous. Amen. So I wanted to look at a few things that surround the Exodus. There's a, there's a lot of statements people try to say that, you know, there's no evidence for the Exodus in Egypt. If the Exodus happened as the Bible says it did, if, if there are truly two to three million people according to Exodus and the book of Numbers, if, if all of these slaves left and you have this all of these plagues and all of these, th this uh, connection between the Pharaoh and the slaves and all these things, you would think you would find something in Egypt. And I've heard people try to say, Sister Beth, that there's no evidence for the Exodus in ancient history. But the Bible is a... And you know what? The Bible and history, they're going to go right along together. So we're going to look at some of these things today. <clears throat> this image on the screen is, a, is from... okay. Now, this year is actually kind of interesting because 100 years ago this year is when the tomb of Tutankhamun was found. King Tut, right? Very famous uh, event in, in ancient history, or rather, uh, of finding this, this, this tomb. So I'm sure a lot of us have, we've seen pictures or we've seen uh, maybe some documentaries of ancient Egypt and the tombs. And how many of you have ever seen like tomb art before? The Egyptians were real big into their tomb art. And some of that stuff is really interesting. Well, this is some, some tomb art of a government official. He was not a pharaoh, but he was a, a government official. And this, this depiction dates to, we have circa, so it means very close to this time period, of uh, 18, or excuse me, 1,800 years before Jesus was born. Now, the reason that is important is because this date, it's not exactly, but it's close to the time of this guy that we call Jacob in the Bible. And what is being depicted here is these are what they call Asiatic or Semite merchants that are immigrating from the east and they're coming into Egypt. Now, why does that matter? Now, if you were reading ancient Egypt, uh, Egyptian artifacts or different documents, there are some that do talk about Israel, but this one and, and other ones, they're going to talk about this group of people called Asiatics. And that's a category, and the Hebrews fall into that category. So they wouldn't necessarily call these people Israelite or, or even Hebrews, but they would call them Semites or Asiatics. Now, the reason this is important is because this group of people, they're migrating and they're coming in to Egypt to settle. Well, does anybody remember what happened at the end of Jacob's life? His family moved from Canaan Brother Bublitz, all the way down to Egypt. And this tomb art, again, it's not exact, but it's very close to that time of the ending of Genesis. And what I'm trying to show you with this particular find is that this shows that the Bible and history are right in alignment with each other. So let's keep going down this. So this is called the uh, Papyrus Brooklyn. And what this is, 
is it's, it has a bunch of slave names that were Egyptian slaves. Now, this dates to approximately 1,600 years before Jesus was born. And if you remember from our Bible studies that we know that the Hebrews were slaves for many hundreds of years. And what this particular find, why this is so important, is because there's a list of about 95 slaves within this this, uh, slave list. In those 95, 30 of them are Semitic names. Nine of them are specifically Hebrew names. So again, remember, uh, Semites would be, the the Hebrews would fall into that category, so they'd be very, either they would be Hebrews or very uh, closely related to Hebrews. And so what this is showing us is what the Bible says there were Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and we've actually found slave lists that show that there were, in fact, Hebrew slaves in Egypt. Now somebody might say, okay, nine names is a lot different than two million. Okay, are they going to list all two million names of their slaves? No, they're not. All we're trying to do with this artifact is show that the precedent is there, the historical alignment is there, that as the Bible says there were Hebrew slaves in Egypt, the, the history record reveals that as well. It's kind of like the Bible is a history book. You guys are great. Well, let's look at a little bit more tomb art here. This is Rekmira. I just like saying that name, Rekmira. This is another governor. He's not a pharaoh, but he's a governor. And this dates uh, just very close. Again, these, these, okay, what I'm trying to show you here is that the dates that we would pin to these events in the Bible are matching what we're finding in Egypt. So that date right there is very close to when Moses was alive. And what is it depicting? Well, what's it look like? It's, it's Semitic slaves, again, the closely related group of people, Semitic slaves, and can anybody see what they're doing? They're building things, and actually they're using bricks. And if you look at the whole artifact and you read some of the inscriptions, what it looks like is they're gathering the straw, they're making the bricks right there, there's quotas they have to meet, that kind of sounds like Exodus. In fact, how they're making the bricks is exactly how Exodus says the Hebrew slaves had to make their bricks. And what does Pharaoh tell Moses? Because if you're meddling, the Hebrew slaves have to create more bricks. If they don't meet their quota, they will be punished. Well, guess what we find in the tomb art? Same exact thing. It's kind of like the Bible's uh, history book or something. I don't know. The Ipuer Papyrus. Now, this document, it dates to earlier than 1300. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of dates, and, and you know, if you write things, these things down, you don't have to memorize them. You can just look them up later. But I, I'm, putting, I'm putting the dates up there on purpose. Because if, if, well, history, of course, they're tied to dates and years and all that kind of stuff. And if the Bible truly is a history book, that means they happened in a specific time. So some people think timelines are boring. I kind of like them. And when you look at the biblical timeline, there might be some things that maybe we're not really sure about, but when you start digging, you see things kind of line up. It's kind of like the Bible's a history book or something. So this, uh, if you were papyrus, this, the scholars are, are debated, but it looks like this was written again in that 1400 range, which again is right at when Moses was alive. This papyrus, it's actually a lament. 
This, this is a priest. This guy is a priest in Egypt, and he is lamenting some things. Now, I'm going to read to you just a little bit of what he is lamenting, and I want you guys to tell me if you can uh, maybe recall if this sounds familiar to you or not. He says things like this. I'm not quoting. I'm just condensing the document. He says, uh, the river and the water is turning to blood. Men are thirsty everywhere. He says crops are being destroyed by fire raining from the sky. He says animals are dying. He says men and children are dying. He says there's pestilence. And then he says there's darkness over all the land. He says there's a great groaning over all the land. Oh, and then he says this, slaves are leaving with gold around their necks. Does that ring a bell to anybody? It kind of sounds like the Exodus, right? Because when the Hebrews were leaving, what did the Egyptians give them? Lots of gold. And so again, what we're trying to, now it doesn't, this document does not say, here we've got Moses and the Hebrews. But again, what we're trying to show is that the Bible and history are in alignment. I'm going to keep hitting that. Because when, when people try to say that there's no evidence for this, they got to deal with that. Okay, or if somebody comes along and says, well, there's some errors in here. You know, there's some historical stuff that's not right in here, Brother Zalke. I'm going to pull this stuff and say, so what's wrong about this? And when all the, not just the information, but the years and things are lining up, it's kind of like God gave us this or something. Amen. So this second one, I got to go quickly here. The appetizer is running thin. Uh, I've got a couple more things. This, uh, this archaeological dig here is the ancient city of uh, Avaris. And uh, this pharaoh, that, who was uh, one of, so I'm trying to condense some of this. I apologize my, my stumbling around here. Uh, this, this particular city, it was destroyed, and then the Egyptians were starting to rebuild it. And Amenhotep II, this is a pharaoh that was involved in rebuilding this particular city. Now, it's interesting, because Amenhotep was not the oldest son of his father. And if you do the, the research and the study, it looks like this is the Pharaoh. If you've ever wondered, when Moses is talking about the Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, why isn't his name listed? Well, of course, Pharaoh just means the king. He's the king of Egypt. Well, this is probably who it was, Amenhotep II. And, and when you look, so how come the Pharaoh in the Exodus story, he doesn't die during that last plague when God smites and all the oldest sons die? Well, Amenhotep was not the oldest son of his father, who was the Pharaoh before him. And what's crazy, his son, who becomes the next Pharaoh, is not his oldest son either. In fact, there is a document called the Dream Stele, which I don't have pictured up here, but you can look it up. And it was actually found right in between the paws of the Sphinx. I'm sure you, the, the big lion-headed thing we know, uh, or lion body face of the man. And, uh, and what the, that dream stele says is this younger son of Amenhotep says, you know, this God gave me a dream that I would be the next, the next Pharaoh. And he's trying to show that he should be the next Pharaoh, even though he's not the oldest. And the oldest son disappeared mysteriously. So again, what we're seeing is what the Bible is articulating. And when we pull in all the puzzle pieces from ancient Egypt, they align because the Bible is a, and sometimes history, you have to put puzzle pieces together to get to the full story. So why is this Avaris city so important is because this is a city of Semites. 
Semites lived here. Semites built this. And the temples and the archaeological findings, what they're looking, what archaeologists are seeing, is that what, this was just abandoned. The temples and a lot of the buildings are just halfway, like it looks like somebody just dropped their tools and left one night. Sounds kind of weird to me. But wait, there's more. This is very recent, actually. This is called the Shepherds or the Nomads of Yahweh inscription. Now, if you're, looking at a, uh, if you're looking at a map of ancient Egypt, in the very southern part of the empire, there was this temple that was built <clears throat> excuse me, by a pharaoh. And in this temple, uh, I'm sure we, we, we all could uh, remember this all again. It's similar to uh, the tomb art, but these are all inscriptions and artwork that show this pharaoh was a very powerful pharaoh, and he's, he's basically bragging about all the people that he defeated in war. And what this particular one is, it, it has the list, and, and I can give you some resources where they break this down in a really neat way, but what they show, and, and the guys that have done this, it's really cool, they, they've had to fly into Egypt, and they had to drive a Jeep way out in the middle of the desert, camp out for like three days to get to this thing. I mean, this temple is about as remote as it can get. And what's so great about this is it dates, again, look at where that date is, that 1400 is that year I keep pinpointing. Because after Moses, you know, they wandered around in the wilderness for a few years. And then they're way at the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in. Well, why is this find so significant? Well, it mentions that this particular pharaoh fought against what he calls the shepherds or the nomads of a god named Yahweh. This is the oldest Yahweh inscription that has been found. It predates the next one by 700 years. Now, why is this significant? Because the geographical location of where this is, it puts the Israelites right in the wilderness right before they get into Canaan. And, the, and there's another artifact. I, I'm just trying to condense this a little bit. We don't have time to go through all of Exodus. But the next document is from a couple hundred years later that talks about Israel, and it lines up exactly how the Bible talks about Israel in the book of Judges. It's kind of like the Bible's a, <clears throat> like a history book. Amen. So I'm trying to go here. The Amarna tablets, really quickly. This is an archive of letters that were found in Egypt. And it's correspondence between Egypt and the area we call Canaan. And there's all kinds of things in here. There's stuff about marriages and taxes and all kinds of stuff. But there's a few letters that are really interesting where these kings of Canaan are begging the Pharaoh for help against the Habiru. Now, the Habiru, that is a marauder or a strong invader. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean Hebrew, but what the Habiru people are doing, it sounds exactly what, like what Joshua was doing in the book of Joshua. Oh, and by the way, the dates align if you, if you wondered about that. Because, you know, the Bible and history, is uh, they're in alignment. So here's a couple things. The king of Gezer pleads with Pharaoh, because the Pharaoh was kind of like the top dog, right? All these other kings were kind of uh, servants of the Pharaoh at this time. <clears throat> this king says... Uh, to the Pharaoh, save the Pharaoh's land from the power of the Habiru. The war is severe. Another king says the Habiru are stronger than we are. And then another king admits that his own brother has pledged it, this treacherous brother, has, has pledged himself in alignments with the Habiru people. Okay, remember in Joshua, there were people that came to him and tried to deceive them to, to align with the Israelites. 
So there, there's, uh, and what does Rahab say? We've heard about you. We know what Yahweh did to the Egyptians. So in ancient history, whether it's in Egypt or Canaan or in the wilderness somewhere, what the Bible shows and what it says in the Bible, they align together. Because the Bible's a... You notice the date here. This is just last year. This was discovered. Now, uh, does somebody have a Bible, hopefully? Uh, if somebody could grab Judges 6.32 for me. This was a, a piece of pottery that came with the name Jerubbabel on it. Now, there is only one individual in all of history that we know that had this name, Jerubal. So, who's got that? Who can read that for me? Sister Kermis, go ahead. Judges 6.32. So this guy destroyed a false idol's uh, altar, and people started calling him Jerubal, and that was kind of his nickname. Well, who is this guy? If you read two verses later, it says his name is Gideon. Gideon. Everybody remember the story of Gideon, right? Blowing the trumpets, break the, uh, bring the torches out, right? So again, this is the only artifact in history besides the Bible that talks about a guy named Jerubal. Now, we don't, again, we, this, doesn't, this doesn't mean it, that this is exactly that Gideon, but again, we only know of one. I'll just pause here for a second, Brother Kilman. It's fascinating to me that we even have the, the nickname of a judge, right? I mean, I don't know. I think that's pretty awesome. Okay, and I wanted, this would be my last thing. <clears throat> this one's not necessarily new, but I like this one. I had to throw something New Testament in there so nobody gets mad at me. But, uh, this is a very interesting one because this, this artifact went through rigorous judicial uh, 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 proceedings. And this is an ossuary box. So when, when somebody would, uh, would die in ancient Judaism, so this is the New Testament era, this box dates to the, the uh, first century when the New Testament was written. And in, in uh, Jewish culture, when, when somebody would die, they would put their body in a tomb, let it, let it rot and decompose so that you only had the bones left, and then they would take the bones and put them in a box. Then they would take that box and bury it in a family tomb. Well, this is called the James Ossuary Box. And again, it dates to the first century. Now, why does that matter? Because you can see a little bit of the writing. It's right there. And uh, Dr. Casey, from, from my studies, we have about 10,000 ossuary boxes, I think, but only maybe 100 or so of them have writing on them. And this artifact says James, this right here, this writing, it says James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. So this was found in 2000, uh, I want to make sure I get the year right, 2002, and it was confirmed in 2012 that this is not a forgery. So I'll let you look at the science and how they were able to figure that out. This went, as I said, this guy was sued, all very rigorous uh, court proceedings they went through. They had testimonies. They had experts come in and look at it. I'll let you look at the specifics of how that went down. But why this is important is because, again, <clears throat> the, the Bible's a history book. 
And when, it, when the Bible talks about James, the brother Jesus, like the one that wrote the book of James, it says his father was Joseph, and, he, and in his book, you know, it says, I'm the, the, the servant of Jesus, and we see all these things that he's the brother of Jesus, the brother of our Lord, and in the Gospels, we see him in other places, in the book of Acts. So this is very significant. Again, we don't have a lot of writing on, on a very minor uh, percentage of the Ashwari boxes that we have have writing on them. Now, James, yes, it's a common name in the ancient world. Yes, <clears throat> Joseph is a common name. Jesus is the Greek way to say Joshua, so that's a common name. But if you put these names together, see, only, we only know of one James that has this, this uh, three-part James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, those three names together, that's James from the Bible. And so, and, and other scholars that I've read, usually you just have so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. You don't have another person mentioned unless that third individual is very famous. Well, it's kind of like Jesus was famous or something. <clears throat> By the way, you can look, I mean, we have graffiti from the ancient world that talks about Jesus. I mean, it's just astounding how much stuff we have. But uh, I just, I, I felt the, the need to do something like this because we have something to stand on. We have something that we can believe in. And no matter how many attacks come against the word of God, and, and I'm resisting the urge to go to that passage where, uh, where Paul tells Timothy, you've known the scriptures since you were a child. They make you wise unto salvation, unto the knowledge and the faith of Jesus. Because if we lose any bit of this, we lose everything. If the events that were written aforetime did not happen, that means the Bible's not inspired that means God did not give us his word, and that means you do not have salvation. And so we have something that we can have faith in, in the word. We can have faith in our God that he has kept and preserved his word. He's kept it for us. We can trust in it. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. So pastor. Amen. Well, that was incredible. <laughs> Amen. That was one. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you and we hope you have a great week. Thank you.